This morning we're going to look at Psalm 27. You should have an outline, uh, the passage and an outline on that handout in the middle of your tables. encourage you to take that out. And if you have a Bible or an app on a phone or iPad to take that out as well, we're going to look at a couple other passages uh, throughout the Scriptures that help, uh, help illustrate and, and fill out and reflect some of the things we see in Psalm 27. Before I read it, I want to just ask this question, what makes the book of Psalms unique? What makes Psalms unique? Why, why is this a book of the Bible that God's people return to again and again and again? We have looked at it in various sermon series, in worship services. We've looked at it in men's Bible studies before. What makes Psalms unique compared to the rest of Scripture? As I read the passage, I think you'll pick up on it. What makes Psalms unique is words like, my, my light, my salvation. What makes Psalms unique is words like heart, speaking about one's own inner person of the heart. What comes in so many other places in the Bible in the form of narrative historical narrative or gospel narrative, we, we hear stories about what has happened in redemptive history that illustrate certain pr- uh, truths and principles. What we read in the epistles of the New Testament um, teach us doctrinally, lay out doctrinally, the facts and the instructions and the teaching of God. But what we see in the book of Psalms is all of those principles and all of those truths personalized, illustrating what does it look like to take God's truth and the history of redemption and live as a Christian today? How do I take all that God has commanded and all that God has done and bring it to bear on the pressures, the sorrows, the stress, the betrayal, the joy of what I am experiencing in my life circumstantially today. This psalm is one of a series of kind of battlefield psalms where David is speaking about the pressure he's experiencing and the fear he's experiencing from being surrounded by enemies. And what we'll see in the psalm is that he's taking all of the history of redemption and all of the commandments and truths that he knows doctrinally, and he's bringing them to bear on the pressure that he feels of having a life in danger in the midst of battle. This is not theoretical doctrine. This is gritty, daily, battlefield faith. And so as I read it, keep that in mind. David is not simply going to say doctrinal things like the Lord is light or the Lord is salvation. He's going to say personal things like the Lord is my light and my salvation. 
And so overall, these, all of the Psalms that we'll look at this summer illustrate this again and again and again. How do I take what God has done and what God has commanded and put it into practice today in prayer and in obedience? Let me read the passage for us. Psalm 27, a Psalm of David. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war arise against me, yet I will be confident. One thing have I asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. For he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me. And I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud. Be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, seek my face. And my heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger. O you who have been my help, cast me not off, forsake me not, O God of my salvation. For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Give me not up to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me, and they breathe out violence." I believe I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands and endures forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that there are places like this in your word that that take what we know to be true and, and press it upon our hearts and give us language to express it to you in prayer. And I pray that, that what we see here happening in David's heart and the, the words and the, the truths that he's expressing on his lips and the faith that he's expressing on his lips, Father, May your Holy Spirit work that kind of faith into our hearts today. We pray that we would be men of increasing faith, men of increasing confidence in you. And we pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would help us in that. Even now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So David is... A king. David is a warrior. And as I mentioned a moment ago, this is kind of a, a battlefield psalm where he is describing the pressure, not only just internal anxiety pressure, but the, the pressure in terms of physical danger 
of being an embattled king. And if you're preparing for battle, um, as some of you have done, if you're preparing for battle, literal wartime battle, there are certain things that you need to have in place, certain types of preparation. You, you absolutely must be trained in your body to have strength for battle. You absolutely must be trained in your mind to, to understand commands and to understand strategy. But the most important thing we see happening here in David is not the strength of his body or the strategy of his mind for battle. It's his heart. What does his heart believe about what he's experiencing in combat? What is his heart trusting in and focused on in the midst of real physical danger and distress and betrayal and anxiety and fear? Where is his heart focused? And what is ruling his heart? What we see in this psalm is that David's heart is a heart ruled not by his circumstances, not by his enemies or those close to him that have betrayed him or what could be. What we see in the psalm is that David's heart is ruled by God. It is not shaken by the circumstances he's experiencing. Is it influenced? Absolutely. Is David tempted to fear, tempted to be anxious, tempted to doubt? To be sure. But he is steadying his heart with the truths that he knows of God's word. He has a heart ruled by God in three ways, and that's what I want to focus on this morning. You can see it on your outline on the back side of the page. Three ways in which David's heart is ruled by God in the midst of the incredible pressures of life, pressures that are far more severe, I guarantee, than you and I have ever experienced. But we experience similar things. And so how can we learn to have hearts ruled by God? Well, three ways. Three ways David's heart was ruled by God. Number one, in verses one through three, we see that a heart ruled by God is a heart confident in the power of God. Confident in the power of God. David is confident in God's power. He says that he will not fear and be afraid of his enemies, even though they are real. Who were some of the enemies that David experienced in his life? Well, he experienced real, as king, he experienced real, powerful, political, military enemies like the Philistines and the Amalekites. He experienced real threats from personal enemies. We'll talk about those towards the end of the psalm. David, at times, was literally fighting and running for his life. He was in danger of dying. He was struggling against, against foes more powerful than him. The, the, the famous one is Goliath, right? Feet taller, hundreds of pounds heavier. And David has to go into battle against him. But remember what was David's confidence in his battle against Goliath? Not in his power, not in his strength, but in 
God's strength. Goliath was larger and stronger and more powerful than David, but David's confidence came that God was larger and more stronger and more powerful than Goliath. And so David here, as he begins the psalm, as he thinks about the the armies encamping around him, about war arising against him, his heart doesn't fixate on the war and the armies and the enemies that are pressing in close. His heart fixes on God who is greater, God who is more powerful than any enemy that David could experience. He saw God's power as stronger than the power of his enemies. In order to have this kind of confidence in God's power, in order to to keep from being afraid and overwhelmed and fearful, we have to look outside of ourselves. We have to look outside of our circumstances. And specifically this morning, if we are going to resist the temptation, the real temptation of fear when there are circumstances in our life that are more powerful than us, whether that is health, whether that is financial need, whether that is relational distress, whatever it is in your life that is more powerful than you, and there are plenty of those things, in order to to build our confidence in those moments, we don't look to ourselves, we don't look to our own material resources, we look to God. Specifically, we have to look back in redemptive history, and in our own life history, we have to fix our eyes on God backwards, looking back. What has God done in the past to prove himself more powerful than my enemies, to prove himself more powerful than these these powerful, dangerous circumstances around me? What has God done in the past that can give me confidence for the present? Certainly, as we mentioned a moment ago, David could remember the battle with David and Goliath. He could remember the deliverance that God gave him from that singular, large enemy. But more than that, David could call on other moments of redemptive history. And so let's look at just one. Turn in your Bible to uh, Exodus chapter 15. This was the song of Moses. In Exodus 15, the Israelites have been, had their backs to the wall of the Red Sea fleeing from an enemy far more powerful than them, the Egyptian army. Pharaoh's chariots and horses pursuing them as they fled from slavery in Egypt. And they have their backs to the wall. Humanly speaking, they're about to be consumed. Some of them probably killed, many of them probably taken back into slavery in Egypt. They were about to lose. They were not trained warriors. They probably did not have weapons. And yet God, in his power, delivered the Israelites through the Red Sea, consumed the Egyptian army in the Red Sea. God's power was greater. And here's the song of Moses celebrating that. And so David could remember this song this event in redemptive history, and even this song. And we won't read the whole thing, but listen to it. It says, Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. 
The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. It almost sounds like a psalm, that, that personal language, personalizing who God is for me. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea, and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power, your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. And it goes on and on and on. David, in the moment of his battlefield crises, could look to the past, to look to how God had delivered the Israelites, to look and remember this song that Moses sang and the Israelites sang and that probably David learned growing up. Could draw on those resources from the past for present confidence. And so if we are similarly going to have a heart that's confident in the power of God, we have to look not to ourselves and not to our circumstances, not to our resources. We have to look backwards. What has God done in the past? How has God worked in redemptive history and in the scriptures? How has God worked in my life already? Maybe it's how has God delivered one of my brothers from a circumstance that I'm now facing? Whether that's a struggle in my marriage or a struggle in my vocation, a struggle financially. How, have, how has God worked in the lives of others? Could he do the same for me? Looking backwards to the stories that we know from the word and from our lives and from the testimony of the saints, that's where we find confidence when life's enemies are more powerful. Secondly, secondly we see in this psalm, David has a heart ruled by God because he has a heart compelled by the presence of God. This is probably the most interesting part of the psalm. There are lots of places in the Bible that celebrate God's glorious power over his enemies. There's lots of places in the Bible we'll see in a moment where we read about the purposes of God in the midst of, in the midst of suffering. But what's fascinating in this psalm is that there's almost this abrupt shift from David's circumstances of being surrounded by enemies. There's this abrupt shift in verses four through six where David starts talking about being in the presence of God. Being in the presence of God. That's as if he's lifting himself up out of his circumstances completely and focusing on being with God. It's so interesting. Let me read it just one more time. He says, One thing have I asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. This sounds like very reflective, contemplative, peacetime kind of prayer. That David, at ease, at peace, in solitude, might reflect on how being with God is even better than this restful posture of soul. But David was actually in the middle of, of the heat of danger and battle, and he's pausing 
and reflecting on his desire to be with God. It's fascinating. His, it's also interesting that you think as king, David could have certainly contented himself with material things of this world and with the satisfaction of his position and power as king. Yes, he was in danger. But if you ask yourself that question, uh, one thing am I going to ask of the Lord? If there was one thing that I was going to ask of God, what would it be? If David, as king, were to ask for one thing in this circumstance, if I'm David, I'm probably going to ask for safety for me and my people. I'm going to ask to live another day if I'm on the battlefield. If I'm forced to say one thing, am I going to ask of God? It's like, let me, let me see tomorrow. Let me return to my wife and children. Maybe it's a little bit broader than that. Maybe it's, God, let your people endure. Let this kingdom of Israel that you are beginning to build, this nation that you're beginning to build, let it endure. Let us not be consumed by this army in this battle. But instead of praying about those things for himself or for the nation of Israel, he prays this, let me be in the presence of God. Let me be in the house of the Lord. Let me see the beauty of the Lord. Let me be hidden in his shelter. Think about other places in God's word where people experience what David is asking for. David is asking to be in the presence of God. He's asking to see the presence of God. We read in a couple places about people experiencing this. One is Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah, the prophet, is given this vision. He says that he saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up. The train of the Lord's robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two, the seraphim covered his face. With two, he covered his feet. And with two, he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And Isaiah said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah experienced what David prayed for. He saw God's presence. The effect for Isaiah was repentance. It was seeing and beholding and hearing the presence of God and especially the holiness of God. It was undoubtedly the greatest moment of Isaiah's life to see that. To be invited into the presence of God to behold his glory, to hear angelic beings crying out about his holiness. That's the greatest thing Isaiah could have ever experienced in his life. Or think of the apostle John given a similar vision of Jesus Christ at the beginning of the book of Revelation. The whole book of Revelation is a gift, a vision gift from God to John, but it be, all begins by John seeing 
the person of Jesus Christ in glory in heaven. And he describes it in this way. John says, I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. This is Revelation chapter 1. And I turned and saw the seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me and said, Fear not, I am the first and the last, and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. What John saw there, again, without a doubt, the greatest moment of his life. And for you and me, the greatest, most wonderful experience that we will ever have is nothing we will experience on this earth. It is being in the presence of God in the new heavens and the new earth. The book of Revelation climaxes in Revelation chapter 21 describing the new heavens and the new earth coming down. And it says this in Revelation 21.3, this is the great gift of God's people being in heaven. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. The blessing of heaven includes no more death, no more pain, no more crying. Includes, we trust, being with and enjoying relationship with all those in Christ who have gone before. It includes living in a creation that is unspoiled by sin, but the greatest thing about being in heaven is not those benefits. The greatest thing about being in heaven is being with God, dwelling with Him, seeing His face, being soothed, and falling down at his feet in his glorious presence. And that's what David's after. David doesn't simply want in this passage deliverance from enemies. That's great. That would be good. The longing of David's heart, the cry of his soul, is to be with the God who has all power. To see the face of the one who can deliver him. David is clearly not after the benefits of being a child of God. He's after God himself. And I wonder for how many of us is that purity of faith, that longing for the person and presence of God true in our hearts. It's never going to be perfect in this world. We long for the for the, the, the experiences and the blessings 
of walking with God. For sure. We long for God to see God at work in the the hard circumstances of our lives. We long to see God's kingdom expand and spread to every tribe, tongue, and nation. Absolutely. But are we also ultimately longing to simply be with him? To see his face? To dwell in his place? That is what all of redemptive history is leading us to. That's what David clarifies is the one thing we should long for and pray for. Ultimately, above all else, even when the danger is near and the rescue is needed right now, we long for God's presence. Finally, real quick, David's heart is ruled by God because he, number one, has confidence in God's power. Number two, because he's compelled by the, the, the beauty of the presence of God. But third, and finally, David's heart is comforted by the purposes of God. He's comforted by the purposes of God. And here's, towards the end of the psalm in verses 7 through 14, David is, he's lamenting. He has already described how God is more powerful than all of his and enemies. He has already prayed to see God's presence and to be in God's presence. But now in verses 7 through 14, David is uh, almost moving into the mode of a lament psalm, and he's describing how he has experienced incredible hardship, not just from enemies without, but from the betrayal of those closest to him. He describes it in, uh, in the way in verse 10, he describes it as a father and mother forsaking him, but the Lord will take him in. In David's life, there was incredible personal betrayal. His best friend's dad, Jonathan was his best friend. Jonathan's dad, Saul, Saul, who had once invited David into his presence, pursued David, tried to kill him because David was anointed his replacement. So Saul wanted to get rid of him. Incredible personal betrayal. What's worse, David's own son, Absalom, wanted to kill him. Absalom wanted the throne. And so his own son pursued him and hunted him and sought his death. David was expressing this lament that those closest to him had betrayed and abandoned him. It would have been easy for David to grow bitter. It would have been easy for David to see the future because of, because of the uncertainty of even those close around him, even those he once counted as allies and friends and family betraying him. It would have been easy for David to give up hope and to move into despair and to move into doubt and to see the future as dark. To say to the Lord, I not only have to battle Philistines outside the gates, but I have to battle friends and family within the gates? What is up? What gives? How can I go on? Who's for me? Again, we have to look outside of ourselves and outside of our circumstances, just as we might look back to what God has done in the past for confidence, for his power in the presence. 
when we experience this kind of heart-wrenching betrayal, when we experience this kind of lament and desperation, we have to remember God's purposes for the future. And so just one passage, one classic passage that illustrates God's purposes for us in our lives, Romans chapter 8. God has purposed for his people to sanctify us, to walk with us every day of our lives, to return again and to bring us into the new heavens and new earth and dwell with him in heaven. He has purposed to be at work and he has told us in his word that nothing and no one will thwart that purpose. Romans chapter 8 verse 28 says, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. And what's his purpose? Those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. God is sanctifying us in order that he might be firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. And then skipping down to verse 35, can anything interrupt this? Can anything thwart this? Can anything stop the purposes of God to save us and sanctify us and to call us home and to walk with us every day until he does? No. Verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? And David was experiencing all of them in Psalm 27. As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord." God's purposes stand secure forever for you and for me and for his kingdom. His purposes are sure even when we don't feel like it. Even when the circumstances of the day scream at us that life is falling apart and God has left us alone. We are called to have a heart ruled by God that would remember and trust in his purposes, come what may. And so this is why David ends the psalm with, he ends the psalm with the same four words repeated twice in verse 27, I'm sorry, in verse 14. Wait for the Lord. Let your heart be strong and take courage. Wait for the Lord. Now David's a warrior, he's a king. He's supposed to initiate and act and move and advance. But sometimes the most pure and most virtuous kind of faith is a faith that is still, a faith that waits, a faith that is confident that God is at work that we cannot rescue and deliver ourselves. And so we wait for the Lord. Waiting is actually hard work. <laughs> it's actually a great expression of faith. 
It actually takes a lot of prayer and a lot of energy and a lot of grit. And David reminds us of it twice at the end of the psalm because it is so counterintuitive to trust God in this way. And so necessary that we would have confidence that God's purposes stand. And so, brothers, I know in my life, I, in myself, am overwhelmed with things that are far more powerful than me, doubting God's power. In myself, I long for material provision and material rescue and circumstantial deliverance for my present life now far more than I long to be with God. And my heart, my heart is given to doubt and despair and worry and anxiety for days to come for myself, for my wife, for my children, for our church. So easily, this psalm redirects me, <laughs> redirects us to see that because God is on the throne, because God is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, our hearts can be confident and we can trust his promises and purposes. Let me pray. Father, we praise you. We praise you for your word because in your word here and in, on every page, we read things and encounter things that we do not know and we do not feel and we do not experience naturally in our flesh. We praise you that you have brought light into darkness, that you have brought salvation into a world of sin and misery, that you have brought purpose into what sometimes feels like meaningless, trivial, burden. We praise you for that. I ask this morning that you would, by your Holy Spirit, give our hearts confidence in these words. Soothe our worries and fears by the promise of your power. Give us the longing, the pure longing of faith to be with you. And we pray that you would, that you would Help us to remember and see how you are unfolding your purposes for our lives day by day. Father, I pray this for my brothers. I pray this for all of our families. I pray this for our church. And we pray that you would do these things, not, not simply for our good, but ultimately for your glory and for the glory of Jesus Christ in this world and in his church, we pray. Amen.